Do you remember the birth of PayPal? It is the company that was the training ground of the world's best entrepreneurs who defined our reality as we know it today. I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically says PayPal was, if, if, you, if you are at a company that's very successful and it's mm -hmm. easy, then you learn the wrong lesson, which is that making internet companies is easy. If you're at a, a, a company and it's hard and it fails, then you learn the wrong lesson, which is you can't be successful. He said that what we learned at PayPal is that we it was hard and we were successful. So we sort of learned the right lessons, which is it's mm. not easy to do this, but you can actually have a success. There were generations of people who lost everything and sort of believed the internet was never going to come back, right? Um, and many of them, by the way, were like equally as smart, equally as talented. It was just a matter of timing and circumstance. In this episode, I unlock the untold stories behind PayPal's meteoric rise and the entrepreneurs who made it possible. The writer Jimmy Sony explores the captivating story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who helped shape Silicon Valley. We are talking about the inspiration for writing this book, dissecting Jimmy's writing process, the origin story of the PayPal Mafia, the role of jazz and the secret code hidden in the book, storytelling lessons for entrepreneurs, and much, much more. From Elon Musk to Peter Thiel and many others whose stories have never been told, hear about the scrappy online payment startup that faced fierce competition and internal strife on its journey to becoming one of the world's foremost companies. Award-winning author Jimmy Sony brings this intensely magnetic chronicle to life with unprecedented access to thousands of pages of internal material and hundreds of interviews. Discover how PayPal's founders who are now considered the technology industry's most powerful network drove 21st century innovation and entrepreneurship as they formed, funded and advised some of the leading companies of our era, including Tesla, Facebook, YouTube, SpaceX, Yelp, Palantir and LinkedIn. From The Wall Street Journal to The New York Times, this national bestseller has received critical acclaim for its captivating exploration of PayPal's origins and the influential individuals behind its success. I hope you enjoy this episode the same way as I did. Jimmy, it's very, very good to see you after Thanksgiving. How was the celebration yesterday? It was good. A lot of food, too much food, uh, which, is great, which is good. It's like the one day a year you're allowed to do that. And then, you know, just time with family and friends. It was nice. Um, yeah, it was really nice. It, it sort of, it, it's funny that it's like, I think it's a uniquely American holiday, right? And so you have this situation where like, you might not always be in sync with other people who are around the world, but it's, it's nice. I think the modern social media tools make sure that everybody gets aware of uh, celebrations all over the world. I read on LinkedIn yesterday a lot of Thanksgiving messages and just right. wondered because I, I remember Canada is not on the same day, isn't it? I think Canada is a month earlier or something like that. Yeah, Canada has a different different day. Um, I, I can't I remember which. Yeah. 
Ja, me neither, me neither. But let's, let's, let's jump right to the topic before we get into a lengthy conversation about holidays and Thanksgiving, which obviously <laughs> is pleasurable. Um, let me first uh, thank you for this book. It's really awesome. It's absolutely fantastic. I had only one problem, one severe problem with the book. So let's tackle that first. Yeah. Um, you described the story of the founders of PayPal back in the 90s and also in the 90s, uh, I'm now 48 years old, in the 90s I did research in exactly this area, uh, internet, how the internet will transform business. And back then it was really difficult to get information, to get access to people. We didn't have the internet in a way we have it now. So mm -hmm. what I read about PayPal, about Amazon, about eBay was basically more or less uh, background stories from uh, secondary literature. And I didn't have a chance to talk to people like uh, Elon Musk, Levchin, Thiel, and all the others. And The only problem I had with reading that book, it was walking down memory lane for me. So it really <laughs> slows down the process because I said, ah, I read about it. I got to my notes from back then and checked it back. And then uh, I read your notes section, which is really awesome. So unfortunately, I couldn't finish the book. I'm at page 155 because it was really for me a slow reading process. Right, right. That's funny. Well, I appreciate the slow read too. Um, you know, spoiler alert, the company is successful at the end. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it survived. It didn't uh, It didn't die like a lot of dot-coms from that era. So, you know, yeah. I hate to ruin the ending, but. This is this is the unfortunate, unfortunate thing with uh, real life that we know the ending 20 years later and right. how people evolved after that. The, the, The first question I have to you is, uh, how did you get the idea? How, where did you get the inspiration from to write this book? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great place to start. Um, because, you know, I'm not a, a tech journalist. I don't, it's not some, like, I don't cover these people every day. Right. And I write histories. And so I had written this book called A Mind at Play which was a biography of Claude Shannon, who was an information theorist. He created the field of information theory. He was an electrical engineer and a mathematician. And he worked at a place called Bell Laboratories, Bell Labs. And Bell Labs in the 20th century, you know, it's this extraordinary collection of people. Um, and, and we live with the sort of fruits of the output, right? So touchtone, they invented touchtone dialing, they invented the laser You know, they invented satellite communications. They invented most of what is considered communi modern communication networks. And Shannon was working there with a bunch of other just really talented people. And I started to think about what is what are other Bell Labs like clusters of talent? You know, that this sort of is like it's this interesting thing of like books are generally written about these like individuals, like lone people who are very accomplished, right? So you do a biography of Steve Jobs, you do a biography of Michael Jordan, right? But to me, the, the the kind of interesting question with with these clusters is why is it that one place mm. can attract all of this talent? Like that just doesn't seem likely. Like the odds are against it, right? And then you sort of start to ask yourself like nature and nurture questions. Like were they there because they were talented or did the place make them talented, right? And so I thought about other concentrations of talent. There's a few. One is Xerox Park. Um, another is Fairchild Semiconductor. And then you fast forward in the history and the most recent example, I think, or one of them is PayPal. Mm -hmm. And 
I just didn't find a book that explained the story of how all of these people came to one place at one time. And that seemed very peculiar to me because we're talking about, you know, Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman and Peter Thiel and Max Legend. And I just like nobody see like it was like this part thing or it's like, why didn't anybody do this? Like this just doesn't make any sense. You know, like all these other big companies, their origin stories have been written. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, et cetera. And I just, you know, I sort of said to myself, you know, there's an interesting, not the whole story, not like the 22 year history of PayPal, but this early period was very, for the reasons you described, like the internet was coming into its own. People weren't, you know, we were just taking our first steps into e-commerce, you know, there were overnight internet millionaires from 1995 to 1999. And then you go through the dot-com bubble bursting. And I just, my thesis was basically like, I think this is an interesting group of people at an interesting moment in history. Let's like, why hasn't anybody done this? And then I just started, that's that's where it began, uh, was kind of just asking the question, you know, there's a book I would want to read. Like, I would want to try to understand how mm-hmm. this happened. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more in the 90s. I think what, what caught my eye in the book was that um, principle back then, People had similar ideas in Europe and also in in San Francisco. The interesting thing for me was that back in the 90s, I always felt as a European, Europe is winning. We are uh, right on the tech uh, track. Uh, 1989 changed a lot in Europe. We were coming closer. A lot of countries joined the European Union. And in the mobile industry, I think um, Europe uh, was at the first or at least at the second place. Then after the dot-com bubble burst, Nothing happened anymore Nothing in Europe. Happened. It was over. Yeah. And Silicon Valley just took off. And one yeah. thought I had when I read through your book is, do you think that it was uh, these people that uh, basically laid the foundation of the success stories in Silicon Valley 20 years ago? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. You know, we should. It's a good. It's a good question, um, and I think I'm going to give like a a kind of two part answer. the The first part, and this is really important, is you know there was Silicon Valley before there was the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was like there was a you meaning meaning like apple you know when it in the era it was made that was still considered a silicon valley company but it was not an internet company and i think those two things can often get confused like there's a silicon valley pre facebook there's a silicon valley pre twitter right um in fact one of the things about elon musk that people don't know is that he was actually involved in even the pre-pre-internet, like the mm-hmm. 1995, 1996 era internet, his first company was called Zip2. Even before PayPal, he had had a success. And so there was this, there's a whole history of Silicon Valley that predates the period I'm writing about. The thing that happened 
right after the dot-com bubble bursting is that this group of people were part of the generation that had two things going for them. One is that they had actually seen the internet be successful because PayPal didn't fail, right? So like, like it, what happened is like you had all these internet companies that fail in 1999 and 2000, I mean, famous failures, buying Super Bowl ads and like finished eight months later, right? These people had the experience of, well, inter- building an internet company is brutally hard, but we can actually do it. We can actually make it something amazing and, and it can be financially successful and we can return money to our investors. So that was sort of thing one. The, th- the second thing they had is that they had a group of people they knew who they could, they, they were going to build the next generation of internet companies and were already starting. I found this email when I was like digging around. Actually, this is a great story. I didn't include this in the book, but this is a great story. So I somebody had shared with me like five gigabytes of email from that era. And five, I was like five gigabytes. Five gigabytes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, so this is I like mean, you look yeah. yeah. Well, sorry no, to interrupt ahead. you, but but when we go back to emails in the 90s, it was no video, it was no attachments, basically, no big attachments, only text. So you you went through five gigabytes of text. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. And and there were, you know, there were Word doc attachments and there were yeah. PDFs and there were Excel spreadsheets. So it's not that there weren't attachments and there were some images because, but but basically what happened is this person had kept this this big file and it was like the old Outlook files, right? So I had to like yeah. find a computer program from the <laughs> 1990s to even like interpret this thing. But I went through all these emails. I mean, a lot of them. This was basically my life for several years, which is waking up every day and going through hundreds of emails. It was really both fun from the perspective of being somebody who writes history and also very tedious for anybody who doesn't do this kind of work, right? Like this would have been the most boring process. But one of the things I found is I found this old email from Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman was writing to somebody and explaining like why he should invest in LinkedIn. Like this is when LinkedIn is still just like an idea. And he, he offers these like few bullets about what LinkedIn could be, right? Like here's what LinkedIn might be. And it was the most extraordinary thing because you think to yourself, okay, today he's regarded, you know, like he's Reed Hoffman. He is masters of scale. He is, you know, all of the things. Um, and at the time he was somebody that had seen a successful internet company had a little bit of, of of money and breathing room, but not like the kind of money that these people do today, but was soliciting investments from the only other people he knew who had those two things, a little bit of capital mm-hmm. and the belief that the internet could be successful. And so that's like a big part of this is that they had their, their immediate network, their immediate coworkers who they had just worked with at PayPal, believed in the possibilities of the internet and had the money to provide a little bit of seed capital. And so the seed capital for a lot of big companies comes out of the PayPal alumni, but it comes like right away, like 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. So the most famous example of this is Peter Thiel uh, with the first half a million dollars of outside money into Facebook. That is that is a sort of famous story. You know, um, He talks about how it was an easy investment because the only thing that they needed to buy was more server capacity because the demand for the product was so high. And there's all these stories around it now. It sort of becomes Silicon Valley legend. The important thing for me is kind of of that moment is a kind of boring thing, which is Peter Thiel is not a part of the generation of investors who saw all their money go up in flames in 1999 and 2000 and 2001 because they made bets on whatever. And so that is, they have this hope, they have this sort of belief, and they have a little bit of capital to invest. 
I think it's a stretch to say that they are the reason that like we have the technologies we do today. But it's not, it, it's fair to say that they are a big part of what becomes known as Web 2.0. So the out of the ashes of sort of the early internet comes like the series of technologies and, and other things that emerge in Web 2.0. And this group really were at the ground floor of that effort, right? Um, and some of the household brand companies that still exist today, Yelp, LinkedIn, um, you know, all of the Tesla, they all emerge from this particular group. And so I think that's probably the most accurate answer I can give, which is to say mm -hmm. there was a Silicon Valley before the internet, but this group did a lot to supercharge the creation of companies after 2002. I absolutely believe that. I mean, I'm always surprised that Europe lost it uh, in the crash in 2000 and Silicon Valley didn't. They uh, moved forward and I believe the driving forces, of course, were the people like Elon Musk who... Um, I would say added tremendous value to entrepreneurship in the United States. And for somehow reason, um, Europe needed, I think, one or two decades longer to, to, to just recover from, from the crashes. I think that's right. I think, you know, there's, look, I'm, I'm not any kind of expert on the reasons for that. Um, but I would, I would say that what I learned in doing my PayPal research, there's a great line that Peter says, you know, he says, um, PayPal, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically says PayPal was, If, if you if you are at a company that's very successful and it's mm -hmm. easy, then you learn the wrong lesson, which is that making internet companies is easy. If you're at a, a, a company and it's hard and it fails, then you learn the wrong lesson, which is you can't be successful. He said that what we learned at PayPal is that we it was hard and we were successful. So we sort of learned the right lessons, which is it's mm -hmm. not easy to do this, but you can actually have a success. There were generations of people who lost everything and sort of believed the internet was never going to come back, right? Um, and many of them, by the way, were like equally as smart, equally as talented. It was just a matter of timing and circumstance. In terms of Europe, you know, my friend, the way we connected is you had uh, interviewed my friend Sebastian Malaby. And, you know, one of the things he identified is that there's always been like venture capital was just more mature in the United States in that era, right? And a part of venture capital is certainly taking bets, like they operate on the power law, right? So you sort of need like one big win and many, many others can can end up being either uh, small successes or not successful. And I think that culture was in place even before the internet. And so, but but at the same time, now today, I think that thesis about Europe is being proven wrong. Like the more you read, the more, like a lot of, a lot of venture capital money has moved to Europe. There mm -hmm. are more kind of unicorns or unicorns in waiting, right? And so I think that's changing too. Yeah, no, I think Europe has uh, a lot of technology that uh, needs capital to move forward. And before the crash in 2020, I think Europe was much cheaper than the United States with mm. also a lot of a lot of talent. But let's stay with, with your book and with PayPal before we drift off in that discussing the European problems. Right. Um, how, I'm curious, how, how long, how much time did you invest in writing this book? Yeah, this was six years, um, six basically years. from start to finish. <laughs> from start to finish. Yeah, it's a, the the joke. One of the board members, after it was all done and it come out, he said he's like he joked with me. He said you spend more time writing the book than I spent creating the company. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty good. Um, but no, you know. So think about it. So people ask me, they're like, how can you spend that much time on a book? You know, it's all sort of relative. Like Robert Caro, who's one of my favorite writers, spends 10 years on a book, right? So like, mm -hmm. I, like I think of it as like, oh, I'm not quite at the Robert Caro level. But I think what uh, what's tricky is 
you know, there's a way to write this book very quickly. But the problem is when you're given five gigabytes of email and you have the opportunity to write it with a level of detail, you know, you sort of, I would have felt, I would have felt bad if I only went through a few of those emails and like tried to like cobble it together as opposed to like really trying to go for detail. And you'll notice like the book is very detailed, hopefully readable, Mm -hmm. but very detailed. And it's because like I would wake up every day and and just try to learn a little bit more, try to understand a little bit more. And I think that the challenge with a lot of writing about Silicon Valley, I mean, there's a bunch of challenges. We can get into what the challenges are. But, you know, it's um, there are narratives about Silicon Valley that if someone had done research, they would find out are not true, right? So like the common narrative, the, the one that was done in the movie about Mark Zuckerberg, like using Facebook to find a girlfriend, like it's like completely false, right? Um, but it's it's because whoever wrote the book like wasn't interested in doing like really rigorous like detailed you know footnoted and noted research and that's fine that's like a style of writing it's closer to to you know novels than it is to nonfiction right but I was going for something where I wanted to let the facts drive the story because I thought the facts were crazy like I thought the facts and the people were crazy enough to carry the narrative I didn't need to just like make stuff up the problem is that in trying to get to the facts. It just takes a lot of time. You can imagine like Peter Thiel's door doesn't just swing open for anybody who emails him. Elon Musk isn't going to sit down with anybody who emails him. And so I had to take time and a lot of like patient effort to go through and like learn everything I could. That was kind of one part of it was that. The second reason it took that long is because there was a pandemic in the middle and I had a young kid and like life happens, right? And then the third reason is I do all my books while working full time. So all my books are kind of like morning and weekend exercises. And so I was working the entire time. So like it maybe would have come down a little bit. But the truth is that what what's powerful about spending a like I look, I know people are like, oh, I could never spend, you know, six years on something like this. And it's like, well, it's not that hard, really. Like it's 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 a, it's boring. And most people fall off because I think they think it's boring. But the truth is, you know, you wake up and you kind of improve your understanding about the topic every day. And so what would happen is like every day I would learn something new and it just added to my understanding. And then that's how long it took for me to feel like, okay, this book is readable, but also really rigorous. And I feel like I've gone to the max of what I can do in terms of people to interview, things like that. Now, I actually, I didn't, I interviewed a lot of people, several hundred, but I did not interview everybody who worked there. Some people didn't write back. Sometimes timing didn't work out. Um, but I tried to get to the key characters. That's the reason you, you asked for the, like the, you know, the sort of why of the six years. That was what was involved in those six years. No, I absolutely understand that. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You said that you are not a full-time writer. Did I understand that right? You have a, a normal job yeah. like everybody else. Well, it's I, the normal job is speech <laughs> writing and ghost writing. So it's writing. I just write for other people, right? And so I, I do that during the day. And then I do the books kind of on the side. And obviously, like, there's a little bit of, you know, it mixes a bit. Um But the nice thing is like my my main work is writing and my side her side hustles are writing. And so <laughs> this was just kind of, it, you know, I've done books before. So it wasn't, this mm-hmm. was my first book, but this was the first book where I was dealing with subjects who were alive. And that is a different beast, especially when they're powerful and wealthy and, you know, have a big public profile. Um, that was, that was a little different for me. It's not like my other books. I always joke with my friends, like it's so much easier to write about dead people. Like it's so much easier. <laughs> 
<laughs> what's what's the what's the difference? What's the difference? Uh, lawyers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, really? no, but in all seriousness, well, you know, I think th- there's sort of two things. One is um, if you are writing about somebody who's alive, they have the ability to comment on the quality of your work. If you're writing about somebody who's dead, they can't tweet about your book. And so it's, there is like a fundamental difference, right? Which is just like, I was always writing from a place of, mm. okay, what would happen? Not if I said something that was factually accurate and made the person a little uncomfortable. That's mm-hmm. fine. That's the job, right? But if I got a fact wrong, that's really bad. Like that's not good. And and it's not good because Elon has 120 million Twitter followers. <laughs> yeah, one tweet. <laughs> you know, one tweet and you're like suddenly a different person, you know? It's like very rare. It's like a, almost like a, a godlike power. You're like one mm-hmm. tweet can change your life, you know? And so, you know, you have a situation where you're like, oh, I have to be very careful. But then the other thing is like, you know, I, I, you have to be careful anyway. But I, that's the difference. The difference is, you know, that the people who are going to read the book were also interview subjects for the book. And that like gets tricked. You know, it's just hard. It's just like, you're always thinking in the back of your head, like, okay, how do I like find, you know, how do I make sure that what I'm saying here is the truth? So it was a basically a back and forth. You interviewed the people, then you wrote a section, then you had to send the section to your interview partners. No, no I never, I never sent material to the people I interviewed. Um, that was that's kind of the agreement because the problem is if you interview, I interviewed almost 300 people for this book. So I can't I can't send the book out to 300 people and get that's just not gonna happen. Number one. Number two, you know, when you're writing about when you're writing about people who are busy and who are powerful, um, it's in some ways more respectful of like their time to, mm. to not ask for feedback. But also I would have felt weird because it, so think about it this way. Let me give you an example. In the middle of the story, Elon is pushed out as CEO. He is, he is pushed out by his colleagues. Now you can imagine that like Elon's version of that story and Max Lubchin's version of that story are different because they're different people. They lived mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. The goal of the author is not to bias one way or the other. The goal of an author for a book like this is to get the facts. And the facts can, you, you, can, you can have disagreements. And there were, by the way, disagreements. And so then what you do is you're trying to present an honest portrait. But imagine that I sent that chapter to Max Lubchin before the book was published and he was like well i disagree with this 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 and this and then you send it to elon he's like well i disagree with this 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 mm-hmm. this then you're caught in this impossible position of like what are you going to do and so what you what what you you know you never you try to avoid what i did was i did i did check factual things sometimes with the interviewers like i would make sure like for example if it was something related to their families i wanted to make sure because there's not like public sources or emails that I got that information correctly. A good example is I write about Max Levchin's grandmother in the opening chapter. Mm-hmm. Well, like, I don't know his grandmother and like, or, or, and, I, and she's passed away and I don't know anybody that knows her and it'd be weird. And so I, there were some facts where I just had to go to him and say, look, I'm fact checking this. Can you verify that this is accurate? This is her name, that this is et cetera, et cetera. And so that was part of the process. But then there's this secondary part of it where you you try to respect that like they have to respect that you are going to do a good job with the facts and they have to live with it. 
in fact, in some ways, they're in the worst position because like I can say whatever I want, right? Um, <laughs> and they have to live with it. So no, I think the book is very good. It's, it's extremely well written. I like it. And it's easy to read. It's easy to read. Uh, as long as uh, people are not like me, just uh, checking them, their own notes. So it's just right. one page then can last four hours uh, delving right. into, into the past. You said you you write full time. So you write during the day and uh, your night hours you spend with writing your books. Uh, how many words do you write per day? Oh, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Um I, my books are generally in the morning. So from like very early in the morning, you know, to like eight or 9 a.m. Um, and then weekends kind of all day. Um, I would say on a given day when I was really in it with the book and like really like it was like pandemic, you couldn't do anything, you know. Um, I was like sometimes doing like 2,000, 3,000 words a day um, mm -hmm. because it just, you know, like it's kind of you just get into a rhythm and then you you keep doing it. Um, not all of those are publishable, but that was that was kind of my my limit at some point was two thousand to three thousand words a day, and that was like seven days a week. I mean, that was pretty pretty intense. Um, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't do that all the time. But when you're in, when I'm in book mode, I'm kind of in a certain specific. My friends, they're like, oh, like it's like Jimmy's like book world. So like it's like becomes a different world. How do you approach such such a project? I mean, when you have the idea, so it's from from Entresult, uh, when we dissect the process back to the beginning. Uh, what is your work process? How do you uh, yeah. dissect such a such a big pro project? Yeah, so it's a great it's a great question um, because it's a, it's a long book, a lot of people to interview, long process. So the place you start, at least the place I start, and the place that the writers that I know. Uh, who, who I really admire, where they start is you start with your outline. Um, so, you know, you're, uh, I had an editor who was pretty famous, who was like obsessive about like making sure that you got your outline right before you started writing, because your outline is basically like a very, very, very refined to-do list. And what's nice about a book like this is that I'm just writing chronologically, right? So I'm, I'm not writing about random times. I'm writing about 1998 to 2002. And there might be some stories in there from a couple of other places, but generally it's 1998, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. And so what you end up doing is you write a really good outline. And I actually have like all my old outlines and you work on those and you work on those and you work on those. And then when I felt like the outline was in a good place, that is when I started, I used a software program called Scrivener and I just created folders for the different years. And I would basically just dump material and thoughts and interview quotes and ideas and whatnot into there. And then I would work in Google Docs and Google Sheets for the chapters. So I'd sort of like know from my outline, okay, chapter one is Max Levchin, University of Illinois. Chapter two is Peter Thiel, Stanford, and him meeting Max. Chapter three is Elon in college, right? And so I sort of knew like, this is where I want to go. But it all starts from the outline, which is how you keep yourself from going totally, utterly crazy. Yeah, it's uh, I love that book. Uh, you mentioned Max, Max Levchin. Uh, you wrote in, I think it was the first chapter, that he liked playing Tetris. And I learned that Tetris basically was invented in, in Russia. Was it a really Russian program? It was, a, it was invented in Russia. It was something I learned along the course of doing it. Mm. And you know, it was one of these like things that he has a really good memory. Like hey, one of the things that was great about interviewing him is he has a nearly photographic memory. Well, wow. and he, and particularly around things related to computers and, and computer engineering. And so he could remember like every computer he used. He remembered every program he played. 
And one of the first things that he fell in love with was Tetris. I mean, I think like a lot of us, like it's like, yeah. I remember playing Tetris when I was a kid, but um, it was called Stakan was the name of the game when it was originally created. And it was funny. You asked about fact checking. I had originally called it Tetris when I wrote like one of the drafts and because it was a really personal detail and it was like from his childhood and there was nobody around to confirm it. I like was doing my fact checking. I said, Oh, like you told me that you were playing, you know, Tetris. And I was like, Oh no, no, I should have said that it was called Stakan. Like it was this Russian game. And so that, then I, then I went and I did the research I checked it out to make sure he wasn't lying to me. And then I was able to go with that. Yeah, funny. We are we are the same generation then. So 80s, 70s, oh, 70s really? 90s, yeah, yeah, 48. I think he must be in his 50s, isn't he? So currently, I think early he's 50s. like late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, 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 yeah that's true. Um, there are two things in your book that I would like to investigate a little bit further. I heard the first time that I heard the term Baseball Mafia was um, in a lecture Ma Hirschberg gave at the All In Summit. Um, Spring, I think it was spring this year. And I thought PayPal mafia, it's a little bit of a funny term. Is it isn't it rude to say that? I mean, you have finance, you have PayPal, you have the most successful people, and then you call them call them a mafia. And then I read your book and you also use the term PayPal mafia. What's the origin of the term? Yeah. And you'll you'll get to it when you get to the to the end, but I can tell the story <laughs> for for your listeners. Um so in two so so just take a step back. You have a group of, of several hundred very talented people at this company. The company PayPal goes public in the spring of 2002, and it is acquired by eBay in the summer, like a late summer of 2002. A number of these people leave the company pretty soon thereafter. Not all of them, and in fact, a lot of them stay, and they they you know have a variety of reasons why they stay. But people like Peter Thiel and David Sachs, Reid Hoffman, Max Lepchin, they all leave pretty quickly after eBay acquires the company. And what happens is between 2002 and 2007, they start to plant the seeds of all of the next generation of internet companies. So this is when LinkedIn comes into being. This is when SpaceX comes into being. Yelp, um, you know, Palantir, a bunch of these other companies. Facebook, all the all that stuff starts to happen. And by 2006, there's an article that calls them the PayPal diaspora. There's this article, and I think it was like, Forbes, like a writer called them the PayPal diaspora. A year later, a writer, I think it was Jeff O'Brien writing for Forbes, has this cover photo called the PayPal, a cover story called the PayPal mafia. And I don't, I don't quite know where the term came from, but I know that they did a photo shoot at Tosca Cafe, which is like Italian cafe in San Francisco. And they all they got a bunch of the people who were part of the company to dress up as mafiosos and do this this cover story. Now it's like a really funny kind of thing, right? Because they're sort of like Silicon Valley tech people, right? But that name stuck, and that cover story from 2007 stuck. And so you'll see it actually like around the world. So you know, whenever a company goes public now around the world, they'll like refer to like that company and mafia. So there's in um. In Canada, it was like the work brain mafia. In India, it was like the flip cart mafia. There was the Revolut mafia, the Monzo mafia. Um, there's a bunch of these like in, in East Africa, this company Copo Copo like got acquired or went public. And they the founders talked about building the PayPal mafia of East Africa, right? Uh, uh, three days ago, not even kidding, three days ago, there was a story about Utah and about how there's all this venture money going into the state of Utah in the United States. 
And the person was like, they're trying to recreate the PayPal mafia, <laughs> in Utah, right? And so it became this kind of brand. Now, it's not like the weird thing about the name is that there's actually like some people who love it within the alumni group. Some people really don't like it. And most people just kind of roll their eyes because they're not nefarious. It's not as though all these people got together and started committing crimes, right? <laughs> um, they just got together and started building more tech companies and like investing in technology. And so that was kind of this like, it was sort of a half joke thing that became mm -hmm. probably more serious than these people ever thought it would. I think that if like, they knew what a thing it would become. They might not have participated in the photo shoot, <laughs> you know, but that's what happened. And so that's the origin story of it is this story in Fortune magazine from 2007. And I, I treated it fairly. I looked at, there's this great line that, the, that a board member gave me. He said, calling us a mafia is an insult to mafias. A mafia is far <laughs> more organized than we were. Um, and so there's some people who just, you know, what what that person was implying and later said was we weren't that cool. And like we, you know, and it's sort of like nobody really had like some like plan. Like it, 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 a lot of this was chance and circumstance. And so the mafia thing has a little bit of, you know, there can be some disagreements there, but that's the origin story of it. What was this? You said chance and circumstance. Something was. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that? Why? Why chance and circumstance? Yeah. Well, I mean, think about the timing of of everything that happened in this story. Um, by the way, I wouldn't call it like I think luck is the wrong word, right? Because mm -hmm. actually, a lot. Of, I mean, as you'll read in the book, and as you probably already read, there's a lot of hard work that goes into this. So it's not it's not quite luck. But if you think about the timing of the company. You know, PayPal gets created in late 1998 and 1999, and it takes off on eBay in late 1999. But eBay had already acquired a payment system. They just didn't integrate it very well. And so if, if maybe PayPal had been created in 2000, there wouldn't If, he, if PayPal had come one year earlier, maybe they would have focused on a different corner of the payments market. If PayPal had become one year later, they might not have been able to raise venture capital. They close a $100 million venture capital round in March of 2000, a few weeks before the bottom falls out on the stock market and the bubble starts bursting. If it, you know, So there's all of these things that like the timing is very like, Oh my, you know, like it, things happen at the right moment, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I think that's like what I mean when I say that to you know that to describe them as the PayPal mafia in 2007 suggests that PayPal was well planned from 1998 to 2002. But it really like they faced so many challenges and they overcame them. And but the company went through many, many, many different iterations along the way. That's what I mean. That like chance and circumstance were a part of this the the engineering talent the availability of talent the people they recruited the fact that max and peter met at stanford at this like little room mm -hmm. the fact that peter went from investor to ceo the fact that elon was involved and was able to bring capital and heft and his talent to people like there's all these things that like you can't kind of say like oh it was all designed to get to that <laughs> fortune magazine cover with the paypal mafia and they knew <laughs> in 1998 They knew nine years later they were all going to be in a photo shoot and they were going to call themselves the PayPal Mafia and it was all going to work out. Like, nobody knew that. I mean, that'd be crazy.
how do we get on uh, the cover yeah. story and fortune? Um, right. I, did, I didn't know. So when I read the book, I didn't know that the first product uh, of PayPal was basically the idea of beaming money. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it? And what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. And actually, and it's funny, it's actually, that's, that's, uh, that's one product removed, you know, so the first company, so there, so just to take a step back, because mm -hmm. listeners who may have not have read the book or be familiar with the story, you, you know, we use PayPal today. And if you don't use PayPal, maybe use Venmo or like one of their affiliated companies. And PayPal is really the union of two companies. The first company was created by Max Levchin and Peter Thiel in 1998. It was called Confinity. The other company was created in early 1999 by Elon Musk, and it was called X.com. They both had payments products. They weren't originally, either of them, focused on email or digital payments. That was actually like one product of many for X.com, and it was a later iteration for, for Confinity. Confinity's first product was actually this series of like mobile encryption libraries. So they were trying to encrypt information on Palm Pilots and other early PDAs. So, you know, your younger listeners might think of a Palm Pilot as something that's supposed to be in a museum, but you and I, <laughs> you know, we're closer to it than they are. They I was, were early, I was, I was, early I was, iPhone. I was desperate to get a Palm Pilot back in the 90s. So it's, uh, it's yeah. it the early iPhone, basically, without the telephone right. and internet access. The, it was the early iPhone without the phone part, right? And, we're, and way worse apps. But Max Levchin was really interested in the idea of encrypting information on these devices. Those mobile encryption libraries evolved to encrypting money and encrypting mm -hmm. money evolved to, hey, could we like use the Palm Pilots to beam money, like send money from one person to another through the infrared port on the Palm Pilot, which by the way, like that technology, we laugh at it, but that's Venmo, <laughs> like it's, it's basically Venmo. It's like mobile payments made easy for everyone. They were just 20 years, 20 plus years too early for that mm -hmm. because not everybody had a PDA very limited ceiling on the product success. But that was actually the first big breakout product that Confinity, Peter and Max's company, created. Was, uh, it, was, it was called PayPal. And the idea was you would beam money across these infrared ports. And that was their first, um, first innovation. And their, their, their theory of the case or their use case was, if I'm at lunch with you, Christian, and uh, you pay for lunch and I need to give you $10, what if we just take out our Palm Pilots and I give you $10, right? Um, and it, again, it sounds, it sounds, it sounded ludicrous back then to people. They actually called it like one of the 10 worst business ideas of 1999 or something in some magazine. But today we do that with Venmo or we do that with, you know, Zelle or, or any, you know, all these other quick payment systems on phones. Now we 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 had we didn't have the technology back then. I did uh, I was part of research projects with Harvard University of Graz, University of St. Gallen, 
for the government to find out um, how will the internet change the industries. So we had mm -hmm. a lot of ideas in the 90s back then, but not the technology. And when you said beaming money, I mean, I think the first time I saw it was in uh, actually in China. Um, oh, really? We, we chat. So where people sat there and uh, one paid the bill and the other one transferred money via uh, via via WeChat. And I thought, why don't we have that in Europe? <laughs> it would be so right. cool. I think it was 2016 yeah. or 2017. Yeah. Well, you know, Europe has actually like been ahead on a bunch of like even further than the United States. Maybe I think China is its own sort of ecosystem. I think it's like, I don't understand it well enough to like really know. But Europe has always actually been a payments innovator, you know, on these sorts of like the, the technology. I've just noticed it and I've read about it um, a little bit. But yeah, so that's where the origin story starts is Palm Pilot money beaming. And that is where the the, the idea came from. And I think, did I do remember it right? I think David Sachs killed Beaming. Was was it David Sachs? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could have well, Beaming right now. So, Yeah, I would say, you know, the patient was on life support when David Sachs <laughs> killed it. Um, we should take a step back, though, because actually it's a very interesting moment. I write a lot about it in the book. So one of the challenges that was explained to me by the people I interviewed, and I actually should say that to your listeners, I'm not in tech. I spent a lot of time picking these people's brains and trying to understand technology through their eyes, meaning have Elon Musk like explain to you, the, you know, that sort of thing. And so everything I say, I, I sort of, my reference points are like interviews I've done or interviews I've listened to or research from emails, things like that. One of the things I heard from multiple people, particularly Max Levchin, is that when you create a technology even if it is not successful, you tend to fall in love a little bit with your technology. Because what happens is you feel you sunk cost fallacy. You feel like, whoa, I've spent all of this time and, and engineering bandwidth and energy into building this Palm Pilot money beaming thing. It's going to work. We're going to make it work. We're, it's going to be successful, right? What happened in the summer of 1999 at Confinity was that they had built this money beaming technology and also built a companion technology to make the, the transfers easier, which was emailing, meaning I could, you know, email Christian at yahoo.com. I could email you $10. We could also have our Palm Pilot transaction. It very quickly became clear that emailing money was like where the where people were excited because it simplified the cumbersome process of digital payments. There was still no clear digital payments player. Max Lepchen had fallen in love with the Palm Pilot encrypted money beaming on these small devices. And one of the things that happens in the company is there's this kind of existential argument, an existential debate in the summer of, of 1999. David Sachs is a friend of Peter Thiel's from Stanford. And Peter's been trying to recruit David to come to the company. And one of the things that David says is like, he basically comes in and he's like, this pump pile of money doing thing is so stupid. We have to kill this. Like, this is so dumb. And there's a ceiling on its success and there's gonna be no network effects and how do people even use it? Um, he says, but if your company will focus on emailing money, I will quit my job at McKinsey right now and come and join you. And Peter kind of essentially makes that, that's part of the bargain. He's like, all right, we're gonna focus on emailing money. But when David arrives, that, that memo had not been communicated widely. And so David comes in and starts telling the team, like, we have to shift our focus to emailing money. He is one part of the reason why the company did that. It's, I think it's inaccurate to say he's the sole reason because eventually Max says, yeah, David's right. Like, let's focus on this. 
the board that says like, well, look, look at your user growth on email versus your user growth on Palm Pilot. It's very simple. It's very, I mean, like, you know, these things move quickly. They're very natural mm-hmm. past a certain point. But David is also the person in the room. And this is why I write a lot about him. You know, one of the other discover the sort of learnings I had during this process is it's actually people fall in love with the technology so much that they fall in love with the, they, they forget about the end user of the technology. And so you sort of create the perfect mousetrap, but you forget who's actually going to be using the mousetrap. David, somebody had this great line about David that I actually didn't end up including in the book. I maybe should have, but he said, you know, David was one of the only people that cared as much as he did about the end user, about PayPal's end user, as opposed to like everything else. And he would often be the person in the room who, you know, sometimes forcefully would say, well, how is the user actually going to use this? Or like, what's the user actually going to do here? This extended to everything. I had a designer who worked on um, international currency conversion tell me that like, David was ruthless about saying like, you can't make even currency conversion hard for people. You have to make it simple and then explain everything else somewhere else. And that role ended up being kind of called product. But that was not really a thing in 1998, 1999. But David Sachs became effectively the head of product, the VP of product, and later the COO of the company. And I, his character, you know, he, he is this clarifying voice. Like, that's what he is. He is a clarifier. And what he does is he, he'll come to the room and he said, he's like, I often got the reputation of being Dr. No. And I, and I sort of asked, like, what does that mean? He said, well, think about it. You have a bunch of people who think that the thing they're creating that day is the most important thing. But he said, we are very limited in engineering bandwidth. And so I needed to be the person saying, no, we have to prioritize. We have to have mm-hmm. discipline. We have to actually like say, like, this is more important than this. And I need you working on this. And so he said, so I just got a reputation within the company of like, Dr. No. Um, that's the backstory on the evolution from Palm Pilot money beaming to emailing money. And it wasn't automatic. When, when, um, when they first discovered that they're having success on eBay, a bunch of people on the PayPal team, the Confinity team that's running it, are like, well, we don't want any part of this. eBay is terrible. It's like a flea market, you know, people selling junk on the internet. We don't want that. And it's, it's David and other voices who say, no, this is product market fit. Like this is actually, we, we've achieved something here and we need to continue to fuel this fire. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Yeah, I think product market fit and making things easy for the customer is one of the most important key success factors in US-based companies. I think Apple, for example, Steve Jobs. Um, I think the difference between iPhone and European uh, smart uh, mobile phones back then was it's just easy for the user. So the innovation mm. at the Apple iPhone for me was 
when I switch to the next version of the iPhone, I can take my whole profile with me to the next phone. It's so easy. It's right. so simple. And the European phones, every time when I got a new one, uh, it was 2003, four or five or in the 90s, I had to relearn everything. So it took one day to just set up the phone so that I, that I can use it the way I wanted to use it. I think this product market fit uh, should be at the top of every company. And probably David Sachs is one of those, the, the people that uh, created the success at pay, PayPal with uh, just demanding it from, from their technicians to just think from the customer's perspective, not from your perspective. Is that the yes. right impression? Oh, and it's, that's a hundred percent accurate. And I would argue that it's actually, and it's funny that you mentioned Steve Jobs because I have, I have in, I've often thought that the sort of personality type that David is closest to is Steve mm. Jobs. What he is trying to do is reduce friction and reduce irritation. And, and, and there were at the time, you know, this is early web. This is dial-up internet days. So irritation was a big deal. If somebody had a slight delay, that was a problem. And mm. you're trying to compete for users. You're running out of money. You know, you're trying to grow this company. Um, irritation and friction are, are a big thing. And David was sort of this person who was just like constantly relentlessly at war with anything extraneous that would interfere with the user experience. And, and I think like this sounds very simple, right? What I just said sounds very simple. People are like, oh, that sounds self-evident. But imagine being on a team and having to tell your colleagues like everything you've done for the last nine months is like needs to be discarded and I need you to shift your focus entirely to something else. You, you know, that's a hard thing to do. Like that's, yeah. that's not actually easy. And by the way, you get resistance, but not just emotional resistance. You get sort of intellectual resistance. There was this great, this thing, I just, this sort of thing that Max Levgen shared with me. He was still maintaining the Palm Pilot app like a year and a half into the success of the emailing money product, right? And at one point, like it was like late at night and he was in the office and Peter Keel arrived at the office. And Peter said, oh, Max, what are you working on? He's like, oh, I'm just doing bug fixes for the Palm Pilot <laughs> product. And Peter like lost it. He was like, wait, you're the CTO of the company and we have the successful product. You need to stop this like Palm Pilot thing. That can't happen anymore because your time is limited too. And so I think that's a big part of understanding it. You know, people have this impression that like, oh, you just create an emailing money product and it's super successful and everybody uses it and network effects and virality. No, these are decisions and this is leadership and it is somebody it is somebody like david Sachs saying he had this line that his team would repeat to me it's funny i interviewed all these members of his product team and each of them separately would say to me yeah david would always say it has to be as easy as email as easy as email as easy as email and then they put up a sign around the office with david Sachs's face that said as easy as email um and this was a big part of the culture was people understood that that part of david's role was saying have we made this like as easy for the user as possible, as easy as email? And I, and I think that's very important. These are not just technologies that like spring into life and like everything is beautiful and perfect. You know, they are, they are very rough pieces of stone and they're kind of like polished from all these different angles. And David was one of the people that, that again, not my, that's not my assessment. It's his colleague's assessment is he was sometimes difficult to work with, but he cared so much about the end user and the end user experience. Yeah, difficult to work with. Um, I work with scientists since 2006. And a lot of the scientists are at research organizations. So I've been at research organizations. And the thing is, research uh, at the research organization, 
sparks curiosity and scientists learn and are trained into uh, finding new things. So basically they do one small study, then they find something new, they pivot to the next small study and then they find something new again and do the next thing. But when they want to translate scientific results into products, they have to shift their mindset from being creative. And I think this is, uh, it, it sounded to me like uh, what Max Lefchin was doing uh, at PayPal. So uh, he was focusing uh, his attention on creating something new. Um, but when you want to turn it into a company, you have to do one thing, focus on one thing only and focus on the right thing that the customer needs. And yeah. this is, in my opinion, really difficult for scientists because they are trained differently. Right. Right. I think the thing that, that's interesting about David and Max, and it's good, it's like interesting you identify them because that's what in the book as well, you know, they, they work really well together. The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the amazing thing about PayPal is that um, as intense as these debates, these, some of these existential debates often were, you know, in, even 20 years later, I didn't hear from people like, oh man, I hated working. You know, it was more, I respected that somebody like Max was like trying to do something and that I respected that David was trying to do something. There was this, there was a, by the way, it was a very intense culture. There was a fair amount of debate and argument and like a lot of hours, but it was also respectful in the kind of like, it was intensely focused on getting to the right answer of the, the of what the product should do. Not like, I don't like, you know, person, or I don't like this, How you know, it's more sort of, Getting to the truth required a kind of intensity. I would say that the thing that um, surprised me, you know, I I don't think even like anybody who is outside of the world of technology understands that any little decision for a web services company or a website, if it's important, like actually has a fair amount of thought behind it, you know, and like debate and argument. We just don't think in those terms. Like the web works so fluidly now. We sort of notice the mistakes, but we don't notice all the work that goes into preventing those mistakes. And I, I found that that was like one of the most interesting things that um, David's team, this alumni from the product group at PayPal, they said to me, you know, so many of my product instincts for later work were shaped by my time with David, because what would happen is that you would go into him. And if you had like something that you had made you thought was beautiful, he would like give you very critical feedback. You had to sort of be ready for that. And they said, you know, I carried that into my future work. So I think it's like one of the things that I was, I was, it surprised me. It was a really valuable series of things to investigate and learn was just like what that role is. What is product? Well, product is partly, not entirely, but partly thinking very concretely about the end user. And making it easy for the end user and not, uh, I would say, Patting the technicians on the back for the great work they did, but nobody uses it. So it's it's really tough. And, nobody and, then, uses it. yeah. and then staying also on a level, on a respectful level, so that yes. uh, people can work together even when they have arguments. I think this is very very difficult. Yeah, oh, it's hugely difficult. By the way, like I don't. Part of it is, I I I sort of like to say that like the book, this book should not be read as a book of of chemistry. It's alchemy. Right. But like, actually, like, it's not that you have like, oh, just find you find yourself like, you know, a David and an Eden and a whatever. Mm. It, it's more that that actually what you want to understand is, do you have an, like if you're if you're a business owner, maybe the lesson from David Sachs or the question you need to be asking yourself is who on the team is like obsessed with how the end user thinks and, and uses our product. Right. Um, 
that that's a, a powerful question to ask. Yeah, and you can spend a lot of time. I mean, focus is also a term that you mentioned. You can spend a lot of time working on the wrong thing and uh, failing tremendously. Uh, with a small shift, you can sometimes take out half the time, uh, 50% well, or, of or the think, time. Yeah, or think about, let's, let's take an example that's not from PayPal. You know, famously, one of the first things that Steve Jobs does when he returns to Apple the second time around is he kills basically all the all the products. There's like dozens of things they're working on and he just sort of takes a blowtorch to them and says, we're not going to do any of those things. We need to focus, right? And I think that's very hard to do. It, it's hard at the interpersonal level because people feel an emotional commitment to their work. And when you come in and you say their work is no longer needed or valuable or like they're doing things that shouldn't be done, you know, that's a really hard thing to manage even if you have the right answer. But this is, I think this is the core of entrepreneurship, focusing on customer demand and making it is as easy and simple as possible for the customer. And this makes a huge difference, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you mentioned also the term friction. There was another friction just came to my mind when I read through your book. And it was quite interesting because I didn't expect it. So I read Founders, I saw the cover, Vapor. Cool. I like the colors as well, as well blue and white, <laughs> white and black. And then I came to the table of contents and I needed a second look to find it because I said, okay, building blocks, the pitch, then you have uh, the Nuthouse Crew and uh, Igor, and then you have divided the book into three sections, right. part one, part two, part three. And then I thought, wait a minute, Cecilia and Defense, I know that from, I know that from chess. So, <laughs> from chess. and then yeah. I read the second part, Bad Bishop, I know that from chess. And <laughs> then the third part, and I thought, I know that as well from chess. And well, what do I have? Do I did I get the wrong book? Is it the chess book or something? Like that? <laughs> and why why chess? Why did you name the three parts after chess opening after chess problems? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You're one of the, the there are not many people who pick up on that because those are specific sequences in chess or like mm -hmm. kind of um, moves you can make or situations. Um, you know, the, the, the story might be like the answer might be somewhat unsatisfying, but let me roll with it. <laughs> but but the, but basically, you know, one of the things I learned is is how much puzzle solving and game playing and kind of that whole ecosystem that was such a part of PayPal's culture was like this competitiveness around problem solving and puzzles and chess and logic games, things like that. And so one of the the players, uh, the, uh, you know, Peter Thiel is an exceptional chess player. Um, he was the young, I think he was ranked at one point, like the youngest player under the age of 13 or 14 in America or something. And he had uh, achieved uh, whatever it is, like whatever status rankings those are. Um, David Sachs, a very good chess player. Max Levchin's a very good chess player. Like on and on. Like he just got a good chess player after good chess player. And I... I started thinking about like, what are like, like just, you know, design elements in the book and like ways you could make the book a little bit more clever. And I, I realized like, I was already writing kind of part one, part two, part three. But then I thought about the like, goal well, in chess, that's like the opening, the middle game and the end game. Right. And so I picked three, um, three chess kind of sequences or moves that, that, that sort of graphed onto the opening the, and, and Sicilian defense the part of the Sicilian defense is that it's it's a move by a weaker party. Like, so it's mm -hmm. like, you're sort of like, it's like a more aggressive move from black, I guess, that like, if you're, because you're in a weaker position because you're moving second. So a little bit of an aggressive, and like, I got the sense like, okay, PayPal was always in the weaker position, right? They were mm -hmm. always like, 
less money than their uh, than their competitors. They were always fighting eBay. They were always fighting somebody. I was like, all right, that sounds like it's about right. Um, the uh, the the middle one, bad bishop. The bad bishop happens when the bishop cannot um, make a move. Like you, you sort of have this very powerful piece, the bishop, but it's stuck in place and kind of can't do what it needs to do. And there were two leadership transitions in the middle of the book that are very messy. And like the leaders, you know, their explanation would have been like, I couldn't do the things I needed to do, you know? And so I was like, okay, that, that works metaphorically. And then the last one was um, doubled rooks. And doubled rooks is this situation in chess where you have two rooks and it allows you to sort of finish the game by moving the rooks and having them advance and checkmate the king. And the way the story of PayPal ends is with an IPO, rook number one, and with the acquisition by eBay, which is rook number two. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was pure kind of like just metaphor. It wasn't anything specific, but it was also in some ways an homage to the culture. I wanted the book to be reflective of the culture. So I was like, okay, chess is a good way to, to do it. There's also a secret puzzle buried in the middle of the book. So like, that's the other thing I did was I buried a secret code in the book uh, was my other thing that that I layered through. Oh yeah, I didn't get that yet. I think. <laughs> you, yeah, it's, it's I'm, very I'm, specific. I'm at yeah. page 155, so I have a little bit to go. Yeah. Um, Sicilian defense also fits very nicely into uh, into the paper mafia narrative. And yes, what's the, that's right. What, now, now you made me curious. What's the what's the what's the secret puzzle in the book? <laughs> so. Oh well, I'm I'm not going to reveal it. I, I <laughs> I'm happy to have people dig for it and then find it. And I. Actually, a few people have solved it, including Max Lepchin. Funny enough, I yeah. after the book was done, I sent him a copy, and he um, he's the first person to crack the code and like wrote me like as soon as he <laughs> cracked it, which is pretty funny. Really, really. And is there a prize or so that people can win when they crack it? You know, I I didn't think about that, but if somebody's listening and they crack the code, I will I will gladly send them a signed copy of the book. <laughs> Okay, good to up know. To, up to a certain number, but let's let's like put it out there. <laughs> if you shoot me a DM on Twitter or shoot me an email, and if you've cracked the code and you give me your address, I'll send you a signed copy of the book. Just as because it's not an easy code to crack, and so yeah. for somebody to do it, I'm like, all right, you're invested. Let's 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 make it worth your while. <laughs> so I will I will put it in a clip afterwards and promote it on perfect. LinkedIn and YouTube. Yeah, and that's Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. And maybe, I'm maybe end up even... having to give away like a hundred signed copies of the book if people crack it. But let's set a I'll set a limit, a personal limit. But yeah. uh, if for anybody that solves it, feel free to reach out to me. The bad bishop also. I always thought, who's the bad bishop? So it's it's, uh, but it's a situation. So it's this uh, two CCO situation and not uh, yeah, particularly. Yeah, you know, and, it's, and again, it's a, it's a metaphor. The word bad has all these sort of like connotations. It's more of a the company at different moments felt stuck in place, and mm-hmm. I walk readers through all sides of it. Meaning, how did the leaders feel? What were they facing? And how did the people who were being led feel when? the company slows down and startups don't really slow down. And so the company goes through this slowdown in 2000 and it's because there's some leadership transitions. And that's kind of what I was like, Oh, the Bishop feels, you know, stuck in place. Like you can't go anywhere. Um, And it's not, it becomes the Bishop becomes not valuable as a piece on the board. And that was like what I was, when I was reading about it, I was like, okay, this sort of fits with the whole motif. There is also another thing um, that came to my mind when I read the first 150 pages of the book. So paper basically is a group of people that were thinking very hard about improving their payment systems. And uh, Elon Musk, for example, with X.com, 
he wanted to have, as far as I remembered from your book, uh, a one-stop shop basically for all solutions that you need in your financial life. And also Peter Thiel spent a lot of time thinking about how to improve payments. Max Levchin with uh, the Palm Pilot money beaming product, which is quite good. I think he also sometimes read about uh, cryptography. So that this was a huge problem when people wanted to beam money from one Palm Pilot to another Palm Pilot, how to make it safe and secure. And then we had the dot-com bubble burst. 2000, we had another crash in 2007, 8. Then the Forbes article came out, Paper Mafia. And then all at the same time, I think in 2008, Bitcoin appeared. Uh, mm. A mysterious person or group like Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin to make transactions safer, more secure, more reliable, more trustworthy without having a system. Uh, in between. And when you look, for example, at the Twitter acquisition that happened recently by Elon Musk and uh, also the aftermath of that, there is one thought that sticks in my mind. Is it possible that the paper mafia invented Bitcoin? Yeah, it's a great, <clears throat> it's a great question. Um, let me, how do I how do I explain this? It's like it, it's purely specu speculative, I guess. So it's, yeah, uh, no, no, it's, no. And 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 here's the thing: I did not set out to find out the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. um, that was not my but ambition. That, but uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. But I think there was one part that uh, let me just check it. Yes, page. that's right. There was. Yeah, Peter, right. Peter yeah. you mentioned Peter Deal said that at a convention uh, somewhere yes. in uh, two thousand. One, two, three, or sometimes uh, it might yes. have been that Satoshi Nakamoto was part of the convention. So. so here's the story. It's actually a great story. It's very, uh, you're a careful reader because people would have missed that. Um, in when, when Max and Peter are getting started in this sort of universe, one of the things that is an early branding tagline for Confinity and for the product PayPal. It, Confinity, by the way, was the company. PayPal was the product until mm -hmm. a few years into it. One of their taglines was new world currency. And the idea was if you could make phones like have currency on them, then like why would anybody need paper money? Why would you need coins? It's like expensive and cumbersome. And it became this like real thing in their minds. Like, what would you, what could you use Palm Pilots to eliminate currencies? They were also coming at the tail end of a bunch of financial crises. So people forget, but like in the mid and mid nineties, you know, the, the Asian financial crisis like and collapses different kind of like currency values around the world. And so you, so they attend these conferences in Anguilla. Um, and this is like a, an island and, and it's called the International Financial Cryptography Association, the IFCA. And they present in 1999 and in 2000. And they're not like, they're sort of met with some hostility, like because they're coming in and saying, hey, we have this Palm Pilot thing, you can like dissolve currencies. But it's not like they're the first people to have the idea that like maybe currencies could be more efficient. And so they're sort of like, they're treated like, you know, like like parvenus, like they're sort of like treated like, oh, you're like, in, you're an Arabist. Like, what are you doing here? You know, like, um, and that but but when they are there it's the world's collection of like academics cyber you know cyber funks like it's like all these people who were like are in and around that universe and um peter you know i think he said this line in a few places but he was joking about it when i asked him about it he said you know 
like you sort of like if you lose your car keys, like the most likely place to look is like, you know, wherever you last were with your car or whatever. And he said, you know, something like that. And he goes, if you are looking for Satoshi Nakamoto, like a likely place is like the these conferences in Anguilla where all these people who are working on digital currency go. And so his thesis, one of his theories is like we might have been in the room with Satoshi at that conference. Now, do I think some alumni from this group, do I think they have the skills to be Satoshi Nakamoto? For sure. There's a few people in this room with like outlier level intellect, like this is the kind of project they would want to take on. Do I, there's a bunch of people who think like Elon is Satoshi. I don't think <laughs> that's the case um, for a variety of reasons, mostly because at the time that Bitcoin drops um, and then sort of the, the, whoever is Satoshi starts to send those emails, you know, Elon is very engaged in SpaceX and Tesla. Like it would, it would just wouldn't make sense. Like, and there's a variety of other reasons, but I, I was intrigued by this like conference, right? So I sort of read up at Anguilla and I read up on the conference and you can still go see the papers that were presented back then, right? And I will say like, it that seems to be a plausible theory. Now, I think the world, like around the planet, people have all of these different theories of who Satoshi is. And I just don't have enough knowledge to know what's true and what's false. Like it's not my particular, I'm not on some detective hunt for who Satoshi is. Um, but from my perspective, it provided context. And the context is before PayPal arrives, people have been trying to make digital money transfer work, digital currencies work. There were all these like digicash. There were all these bankruptcies that had just happened, right? This was very, very early crypto. And into that world steps these two people and this whole team eventually. And you know what? Like, to their credit, like they didn't listen to the critics. Like the critics said like, oh, you're never going to get anywhere with this PayPal thing. That sounds so foolish, right? Nobody's going to beam money between Palm Pilots. Like that's like, we've been trying this. You guys don't know what you're doing. And they cracked one code on how to make the digital money transfer work in spite of the criticism that they got at this conference, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, I think it's an interesting part of the story, but you're right. Satoshi has mentioned, but I don't think I would, I would, don't, I mean, again, I don't know, but I don't think anybody from the alumni group here is Satoshi Nakamoto. The PayPal mafia invented Bitcoin. This would be a great, <laughs> <laughs> a great conspiracy theory. <laughs> you know, go ahead. If, if the conspiracy theory helps me sell a few books, great. But otherwise... We should invent this conspiracy channel. So <laughs> Right. I should connect it to the code. It should actually be like the code will reveal who Satoshi is. <laughs> yeah, but I think Elon Musk later promoted more Dogecoin. So maybe it, maybe it was the cover for inventing Bitcoin. Oh boy, I don't know. I, I think that's a that's a very the challenge with most conspiracies is mm. most conspiracies are too elaborate to pull off. Like it's like just you know, um, but yeah, I think you know. I will say that that the the part about it that's interesting is studying Digicash and studying some of these early. You look at the, like the language around some of the early beans, flues, you know, all of these things, and they are very they track very closely with a lot of the the taglines of cryptocurrency. Um, and so sort of, you know, the, the sort of joke would be like, everything old is new again, even cryptocurrencies, you know? Yeah. And I think what, what, what depresses me is I know the world in the 90s. So Europe was mostly based on cash. Uh, also credit cards were not widespread. And what impresses me is people like uh, Elon Musk, like uh, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, but also others like Steve Jobs or uh, Jeff Bezos, who have an idea and have the guts and the nerves to focus on bringing the idea to life. Now, looking back uh, from 2022, uh, 
seeing what their companies changed in the world and what they brought to fruition is really interesting and amazing to see. And I think part of it is, you know, if, one way to tell the story is as a story of compromise, right? So think about it this way. It's not as though there was some pure vision of a new world currency and then PayPal held fast to that vision even as they became successful on eBay. The truth mm -hmm. is the team shifted very quickly to saying, we have product market fit on eBay. We need to like cater to this auction, digital auction marketplace. You know, you could argue that, that, and some people did in my interviews with them, that like actually it was sort of abandoning the original vision uh, in, in some ways. Um, but that's the work of startups is this delicate dance between your highest and best goals and the hard reality of what the market is looking for. And what the market on eBay was looking for in late 1999 and in early 2000 was a seamless way to make digital payments. And no one had figured that out until this group and no one had really make it, made it as user-friendly as this group did. There are a lot of fantastic points in your book. One, one point um, that uh, also made me think, uh, today I was at the hairdresser and uh, the lady asked me, so what are you what are you currently reading? And they said, uh, of course, your book. <laughs> so a little <laughs> bit of promotion. And then she asked me, what is it about? And I said, well, you know, I'm 48 now. And uh, in the 90s, I had this struggle that um, should I get my degree? So should I finish university? Should I get my master's degree? Should I do a PhD? Or should I uh, leave university, found companies uh, and try something else? And always I thought it was just me that had the struggle. And then I read your book and found the story about Elon Musk and it, it sounded to me or maybe it was just interpreting my reality into your book that Elon Musk also had a similar struggle back in the 90s. So it's uh, basically it was not such a given that he went straight into entrepreneurship. He also had opportunities at the university level. Did I interpret too much or was it really that way? No, your your interpretation is exactly right. I mean, I can't speak for your personal circumstances, but um, <clears throat> so to, to sort of take a step back, You know, part of the, the value of doing a book like this is that I was allowed to ask the people that I was interviewing about the earliest moments in their life. Mm -hmm. um, PayPal, by the time I'm writing about it, you know, these people are all 20 years removed from PayPal. Um, you know, like Elon is well into his, like, I think I first spoke to him in 2019, well into his Tesla and SpaceX years. So this is like ancient history, right? Um, actually, it's funny, I didn't put this in the book, but he joked with me. He, like the first time we're speaking about it, he was like, man, like you're like writing about like the Paleolithic era. Like we haven't <laughs> even moved on to land. Like human beings haven't even moved on to land yet. We're just a bunch of cells, you know? Um, so I, in looking back, you sort of look back at their lives in college. Like how do these people become who they became? What are the decisions, you know? Because it's really tempting to like look at somebody like that and say, well, you know, Maybe you were always going to do this, but it's actually genuinely now almost never the case that you know exactly what someone's going to do when they're in their late teen years or early 20s. That was true for Elon. He had transferred from a Canadian university to the University of Pennsylvania. And at the University of Pennsylvania, during those later years, he's doing internships in Silicon Valley. And, you know, he's kind of faced with this like very classic choice. He applies for and is admitted to graduate school at Stanford. He is thinking about startups because like the first iterate like the first series of web companies have just gone public netscape has just gone public people are becoming really successful he's knows technology and enjoys it he knows how to write code 
And then the last decision was like, do I just get a real job? Like, do I just apply to get a real job? And I found, you know, people in his life who were kind of helping him make this decision and like figure out what to do. And I was blown away. And the reason I was blown away is probably the same reason you were blown away, which is you think of him as a certain model of success, you know, confident, intelligent, drives really hard, knows exactly what is to be done. But when he was at that age, there was far more indecision at that time in his life. Like, do I get a real job? Do I go to grad school or do I create my own startup? And they all carry different kinds of risks. But it was fun picking apart and like trying to understand like what is the thinking, who is influencing him, you know, how, what time do these decisions happen? And so I got a real kick out of, out of studying that part of his life. It also led me to like, I discovered, for example, like he applied to, to get a job at Netscape. He couldn't, he didn't get a response. So he went to the lobby in Netscape and just like stood around trying to strike up a conversation and he was too shy. And so he like left without having a conversation and I just thought it was such like a, so, so funny. You know, you think of this like person today who is like at the top of the world and is like doing all these things he's doing, like struggling to get a job because he can't talk to anybody in the lobby of this building. And I, I don't know, I just found it. Um, sometimes when you're writing, you write, you think about your audience. And one of my audiences for this book, I think in my mind was somebody who's, let's say, between the age of like 15 and 25. Mm. and they're kind of like facing the same decision that a lot of us face when we're in school and trying to figure out what our lives might look like. And I think there is something comforting about knowing that maybe one of the people that you would look up to didn't have it all figured out when he was in his like late teens and twenties. He was smart and he had done very well in school and like he had clearly demonstrated some promise and some talent, but it wasn't as though he or Max or Peter or anybody like had a clear plan, you know? And I think there's, I, I wrote about it because I was like, people should know this. Like they, they should know that this person kind of was like deciding, like, do I defer my graduate school? Do I drop out? What do I do? Like, how do I create a company? Who do I create it with? So that was the impetus behind writing so much about a story that in some ways is like the, it's pre-PayPal. It's not quite PayPal. There's some links and connections, but I wrote about that because I was like, wow, you know, it wasn't just like success after success after success. It was actually this process of figuring out who he is. I think it's definitely helpful for people between 15 or 25 and also people in their 50s to see that uh, struggling is normal. So this is uh, part of life and uh, also the big winners and the most accomplished entrepreneurs of our times also face the same situations like everybody else and it's just up to how they decide what to do keeping on hard work focus to move forward um we can run now through all uh stories and chapters of your book but i think we need uh, <laughs> about uh, 20 hours then or 30 hours of right hours. exactly we spend six years in research right exactly. Uh, maybe maybe we can strip it down uh to the uh before we come to the final question with the three most inspiring moments of that book for you. So oh, which wow. were the most, uh, the three moments or stories that inspired you the most? I mean, it's just, it's just because of lack of time. Yeah. So we, we, we can't sit no, here. No, for, no, no. For and I would say, I would say there are like 30 or 40, uh, truthfully, uh, but I'll, I'll try to come up with three. Mm. I would say 
one key story is um, there's this in in chapter fifteen. I write about this engineer whose name is Bob Frezza, and Bob Frezza was a young Stanford person who interned at the company. He kind of comes to his internship a little circuitously. And Bob passes away when he's um, like 20 years old. I think he was like second or third year at Stanford. And his last job, you know, on, you know, on earth was working at PayPal. And the team and the family develop a real connection. The team makes a memorial book for Bob's family. Bob was one of the people behind one of the most important technologies that made PayPal successful, which was fraud fighting. He was very young, very, very young. But he was kind of this extraordinary person. And I learned a lot about him in the course of doing all of this research. I was in touch with his family. I was um, I watched videos of him. Like there was some video from his high school graduation that I watched. I found this site that was dedicated to like, like his friends when he passed away, put up like a memorial site and they would all put memories of Bob. And Bob was this really, his full name was Robert Frezza Jr. But he went by Bob. But Bob was this really extraordinary person. And I think one of the inspiring things from that moment is his age was not an impediment to his contribution to the company. Like it really, I mean, he really made a big difference and like, like had a long lasting impact. And he was maybe like one of the youngest or second youngest person on the team. So I think that's really important for people to remember. I would say the second inspiring moment or kind of thing from the book, um, you know, I had a lot of time interviewing the people who were at the top of the company and many of them mentioned this board member, John Malloy. Um, and John is not the, you know, he's, <laughs> I say he's not famous and he would prefer not to be famous. I think he was actually a little bit sheepish and a little uncomfortable that I was even writing about him. When he finished the book at the end, he said to me, he's like, you put me, like, he's like, I'm in this book way too much. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, well, you know, you're important. John is this mentor figure for this group of people. And the reason he's in the book as much as he is is because Max and others said, you know, you really do need to tell the story of like how many times it was important that we had somebody like John, who's mm. like an older brother type figure, but really on the board. And it made me think about how many people within companies and company stories like don't ever actually get attention, but play very significant roles. Even if those roles are not like designing technology or refining the product, just this sort of like almost like a godparent role in a company, right? So I think that was like, I don't know if it's inspiring, but it was made, it made me think about that like within companies, like who's playing that role. Mm -hmm. The last thing I would say is at the very end of chapter 14, you know, again, sort of spoiler alert, Musk is kicked out of the company. Hmm. In the four no, years nobody that knew I, that. Nobody knew that. Right. In the four years that I'm writing about Elon's life, he gets kicked out of the company. Mm -hmm. He almost dies because of a car crash. He almost dies because of malaria and meningitis. And he loses a child. And in spite of all of that, like any one of the things I just mentioned could like break another human being, right? Could like lead you to just be like, look, I have money. I'm going to go sit on a beach for the rest of my life. Like I'm done. Right after all of those experiences is, is essentially really in that whole period is when he starts SpaceX. And I find that to be very inspiring because I think if any one of those things happened to me, I'm not sure I could recover from it. 
the truth is like, you know, that is a, those four things in sequence, like two near death experiences, being kicked out of the company you created and losing a child. Those are all difficult things stacked over, like in that short of a time frame. they're, they're, I mean, almost insurmountable. He surmounts, he, he overcomes all of them, you know, becomes an investor and then later the leader of Tesla and starts SpaceX. That's pretty amazing. Um, th- that, that is not the part of his story that often gets covered today. People don't really pay attention to it. And I, and by the way, I don't think he, he doesn't sit around talking about it. He's not like, that's not, like I drew that out from, from him and then from, from the different pieces of the story that I put together. It's really incredible to think about somebody doing that because there's a part of being an entrepreneur that is just about endurance and about having more at bats. Right. And I think that's actually like one of the things that people forget about his life is particularly in these years, it was very difficult. Um, you know, this like affects his relation, affects his marriage. Everything was affected by all of these things. And I, and I just think that's like something worth appreciating. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we have humans have the most astounding ability to overcome. It's like one of the things I love best about writing biographies and these kinds of stories is just understanding what the capacity of human beings is. Um, and, and I found that to be a particularly like crazy moment. Like, months after some of these things happened he is back at it trying to do it again yeah i think it's it's a good idea to point that these stories they should be told more often that after all also the big heroes of our days are after all humans who make yes. the same experiences like all others with maybe one difference they don't continue dwelling on the problems they had in the past and they just learn to let go and uh, move forward while well, other and- people yeah, and and welcome to the the signature challenge of writing a book about the past, which is if you're interviewing people who do move forward and who don't dwell, mm. it's actually very it's like a weird experience in some really? ways because because they thought it was so strange that anyone would care. Like I if I had so many people skeptical of the project, not because they didn't like want to talk about it, but like I like Elon. It, he would say he said to me multiple times, he's like, this is such an old story. Like, why would anybody, you know, why is anybody gonna care about this? Max Levchin said to me directly, it was like, you know, I just don't know why anybody's gonna gonna care about this. And I, I kind of knew I was like, I don't think you know how much people can care about this. Like, I don't, you know, that there's entire generations of entrepreneurs that I think look up to them now. But the problem is they're only in their like late 40s and early 50s. So they don't see themselves as like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. They're, they're still like <laughs> Skywalker, right? they're still like fighting the Death Star, right? <laughs> um, and so I, that's the tough part is if you are always, if Silicon Valley is always forward and future focused. And so I had to sort of like bring these people back to the past a bit. It was a fun exercise to do it. I think when, um, for people in, you mentioned 15 to 25, I would also say 30, 40. It's really fantastic to read these stories. Also, you mentioned Sebastian Malaby, for example, uh, reading the stories also in his book from the 80s, 90s, how venture capital uh, evolved, what the challenges were, why venture capital is venture capital as we know it today is of tremendous value. Also, this, uh, this, this background stories to see that, uh, People struggle. They they are humans. They they are not just uh, machines uh, being born with a natural gifted talent to work twenty four seven and uh, don't care about uh, what's going on in life. They also experience a normal life. I think it's very helpful for the young generation. 
I think it's helpful for everybody, by the way. Like I, you know, it, plenty of the, 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 the interesting thing about the story of Silicon Valley is it's told as a story of young people, but it's really not. Like a lot of the people that make big contributions to PayPal came with 20 years experience, you know, not everybody, but a lot of them. I, I think that the key, you know, I, I, what I hope people take from it is an appreciation for kind of like, what does the, what does the actual day-to-day of this kind of entrepreneurship look like and feel like? You know, how do these people think about the world? Um, and then how much actually like how much fun it is, like how much comedy there is, like in the middle of this whole crazy system. I think it's one of the things that surprised me most is that like actually these people have a very lively sense of humor. Um, <laughs> because because these are ridiculous situations sometimes to be in. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh Jimmy, it is really great talking to you, and I think we could go on uh, another five hours or six hours. Um, let me ask you. Two final questions. I think one one uh, one just popped up in my mind when you mentioned the second point, um, social skills. You mentioned that very often in your book, negotiation skills make a difference, social skills make a difference. Uh, what is your view on social skills in entrepreneurship? How important is it? Oh, it's a, it's a really, it's a good question. Um, no one's asked me that before. I would say it depends very much on the role. Um, you know, if you are the head of business development or if you are the CEO Uh, social skills matter to a degree, right? Like you have to be able to interface with people, connect with mm. partners, tell people your story. But if if you, you know, in a funny way, at this moment in his life, you, so, so today you see sort of Max Levchin is, is Max Levchin. He can fly around the world. He can go to Sun Valley. He can go to Finland and be on a, con he was just in Finland at a, at a, on a panel. You know, he's become very good at those things. He can go on CNBC and tell his story. And he is, he is polished. At that moment in his life, he's not polished. And I don't think, I think he'd be the first to say like my, you know, he had certain social skills, but not, not others. Um, so I think, and he was the CTO of the company. He didn't need to do those things, right? They hired, there were other people around who did those, that sort of work. So I think it very much depends on the role um, because there's a way in which like part of what someone told me is the startup, one of the things that makes particularly startup founders successful is being able to tell the story of what the company could be publicly, mm -hmm. right? So like like projecting an image of the future. This is what this is what Steve Jobs did exceptionally well, right? But I don't think that social skills are actually like all that required. In fact, I would argue Silicon Valley is one of the only places or sorry, technology now. Let's not just say Silicon Valley, but like let's say like the world of technology. It's one of the few places where somebody who has no social skills can actually do really really well, right? Because code, you don't need to be nice to code. Code just needs to work. <laughs> you know? And so it is actually one of the few areas where you can be very introverted, maybe a little nerdy, and you can you can thrive. Yeah, the nerds of yesterday are the heroes of today. This is quite interesting to see. <laughs> you mentioned right. also right. storytelling. You mentioned in your book, Elon Musk was a gifted storyteller already back in the 90s. I think there was uh, one part in the book where you pointed at uh, his storytelling skills. Is this, Yes. Uh, But what makes storytelling so ex exceptionally important? Oh, I mean, we could talk for three hours about this, but here's, <laughs> here's what I would say. So a startup is baked in uncertainty. It's uncertain from the beginning. So you have to persuade people to part with their money, if they're investors, mm. their time, if they are employees, right? Or like, like smaller amounts of money, if they are customers, and you're painting a vision of the future. Right, you are actually telling a story of what will happen eventually. 
right? It's not like you can say like, hey, we have this thing. Here's, you know, you can do that once the company's made. But at the beginning of a startup, you are trying to frame a narrative about what something might be or how something might work, right? And even when the product is done, you still have to convince people this is a vision of the future that you really want to be a part of. When you are recruiting somebody, you have to tell them, I am going to, you're not going to say, I'm going to make emailing money really cool. You're going to say, we're going to change finance forever, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a place where, and I'm not the first person to say this, other people have identified it, but Elon has some real gifts as a storyteller and real gifts with language, I would say. He, he uses language in really interesting ways. He uh, He's very widely read. He know he drops literary and biblical and historical metaphors into the things that he 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 says, but he is very very good at framing a narrative of what the, of what the future can be, and then kind of like you know fighting like hell to get there. And I think that that is an underrated quality. Like like that sort of storytelling is not easy to do, and you have to do it well if you're going to convince partners, if you're going to convince investors, potential employees. And it's a big part of what, you know, multiple people identify this and, you know, you would interview with him and you would be sort of convinced that you were going to like take on JP Morgan and win. Um, and, and I would, and even by the way, even like sort of his peer group, like Max Levchin and others have said, like, he is one of these rare people where like, he can convince you that he is doing the God's work, like the most important work there okay, is. Okay. Um, I don't know. I think was it in your book or in Sebastian's book? Premature truth uh, is something about uh, storytelling, and I think it's also important not to take it too far because sometimes yes. uh, people can stumble over storytelling as well. Yeah, and and look, there's a, there's a fine line between sort of storytelling and you know straight up like lying. But I think people people forget that startups are stories. Like it, it's actually like a story of something. You know, it's sort of the classic hero's journey trope, right? Um, but I think it's actually, it, it is, it is a talent to be able to sketch a vision of the future and then convince people to build it. Like that's not, that's not easy. Um, that is like, it really is actually the kind of thing that like, we, we don't think about how hard some of this stuff is, but to, to sketch a portrait of something that might be, especially in the face of criticism, I think of that as something to be celebrated. Yeah, especially as mostly like people don't understand or are fighting against new stories sometimes at the beginning initially. It's very hard to move forwards then. And That's right. I think it's a it's a very good point that you said, uh, sketching a vision of the future. Let's use the final minutes in our recording to sketch a vision of your future. <laughs> what's 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 your future looking like uh in your in your mind uh when you think about your next project? What is your next project gonna be? Yeah, you know, I have a somewhat unsatisfying answer, which is I don't, I don't know yet, but I'll give some clues into how I'm thinking about it. Um, so I have this Google Doc I keep, uh, which is literally, it's literally the Google Doc. It's like books, I books like book ideas, master doc or something. Mm -hmm. And what I do is I just sort of think about like books I want to buy that aren't written, or I think about sort of stories that are a little undercooked, right? That should like somebody should go back and really do a more rigorous job. And so I have this long list of just ideas I keep. It's mostly like a sanity thing. Like I toss them in there so I don't have to think about them. And then I, I kind of gather momentum or I go meet with people or I read more and I see what's there. And so I haven't settled on what's next for me yet because my books are also like, as you could probably tell, like I don't, they're not fast. It's not like it takes me like one year and then I'm done and I'm like on a you know track. 
It's more research and interviewing. And so I have to be really careful with the things I choose because I sign up for them for like three or four years, five, six, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm like on the hunt for a good sports story. Like I, I spent some time recently with an NBA team that's got a great story. Mm-hmm. And I'm like trying to think about like sports because I think sports is just, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm not a big sports watcher, but I sort of think of sports and the metaphors and like the discipline and the endurance. It's very, like, very much like a startup, you know? Um, and so I, I've been thinking about sports stories, but I'm I'm also like I, I want to find something that I really feel like okay, this is something you know, like this could really be something. The founders has done well, and people really like it, and people like the characters in it. Um, but you you don't get that all the time, you know. You sort of have to find the right project and then not go crazy. And so I'm still in that search for the the right project. There's some things happening in space travel that I really think are cool. Um, I spent six months talking to an astronaut while he was in space. Um, oh. so he, he and I would communicate every Sunday. We yeah. would have like a call sort of like this, like an hour long call for six months. So I have these 24 conversations from space that might become something, um, and, and things like that. So I'm sort of looking for an angle into a story that like somebody, part of, part of what I try to do is I try to tell the story or try to tell a story that somebody else isn't going to do. Um, I'm, I'm actually sort of looking for like a little, something a little like different. And so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. It's still searching for that different thing. So I welcome, like, if, if people have ideas, feel free to send them my way. 24 conversations from space sounds like a title. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Jimmy, is there anything at the end of the podcast you would like to talk about? Any question that I didn't ask and uh, I should have asked? No. Look, I think you covered it and covered areas that almost no, almost everybody misses. So you're clearly a careful reader. Um Thanks. But I just, I just appreciate the time and I appreciate you sharing this book with your audience and, you know, and if anybody cracks the code, shoot me a DM, you know, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy. I will make that big. So a few clips Perfect. and promote it in my network. Jimmy, Perfect. thank you very much for your time and for writing this book. It's fantastic. I love it. I have to, I'm lucky. I still have a uh, halfway. So I still have a few pages to go and I will oh, definitely great. finish it. Uh, I wish you good luck for your future. Good luck with your family, uh, all the health, success, and I hope to hear soon about your next book idea. Well, thank you, Chris, and I really appreciate all of that. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs> See you. Bye. Did you like this episode? Then please, wherever you listen or watch this video or podcast episode, please subscribe to the channel. It helps with the growth and the more subscribers the podcast and the YouTube channel gets, the more attractive it becomes for speakers. So if you want to see more conversations, more interviews, please smash the like button or the subscribe button or both. Have a great day.